If you're ready to take action to create the life and business you want and be surrounded by courageous, like-minded warriors, entrepreneurs, creatives, and professional freelancers supporting each other and feeling the fear and doing it anyway, I invite you to join my free online community, Momentum Warriors. Just head over to www.momentumwarriors.com now. You're listening to Transitions Podcast. Learn how to make money doing what you love, become more confident, create a positive impact, and have the lifestyle that you want with marketing consultant and small business advisor, Anthony Chansamuth. And welcome to Transitions Podcast. This is Anthony Chansamuth, and I have with me Claire Harrison joining in, calling in from Bali. Hi, Claire. Hey, Anthony, how's it going? Uh, it's gone really well. So uh, I did just mention we are in Bali. So anything weird happens like, you know, <laughs> snakes bite your feet or the line drops out. This is pretty common because we are sort of talking to an island <laughs> connecting over yeah, an ocean. It's getting better, but it still has a habit of cutting out from time to time. So Love bear it. with us. Love it. <laughs> That's right. So... Let's get right into it. So, Claire, you, uh, how should I put this? So, you are a former business journalist turned digital nomad, has traveled to many different places, Sydney being one of those, mm-hmm. and now you're, you're based in Ubud or somewhere around there and, and, and you're doing some really cool things. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summary. I would say, so I actually left the UK in my job in business journalism about two and a half years ago, and I, my plan was to go to Australia and get a job because um, I was just sick of the UK and I was not enjoying my career and kind of the way it was panning out. And on route, I was getting freelance gigs. Actually, I went to India for a wedding and ended up on a beach and go with my friends and work from London was coming in. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was, as Tim Ferriss would say, geo-arbitraging. I was you know, earning money in one country and living in another. And I started to think, oh, this is quite an interesting way of living. But obviously, I'd never really heard of the whole nomad scene and didn't really know what that was about. So that was kind of a realization about two and a half years ago. And then I did make it to Australia and I joined Hub Sydney, which was, again, an amazing experience because that was the first time I'd ever really worked around other people who were self-employed and kind of getting inspired by people around there and like learning all these like fascinating people earning their living in different ways. And it was actually there that I spoke to one of the girls that works at Hub Sydney and she mentioned that, that there was a, a similar, well, a kind of a hub equivalent in Bali. And so I just thought, it sounds too good. I have to check it out. And so I did. And that's how I kind of ended up here. So that was nearly two years ago now. Wow. Okay. Two years. Yeah. I, I like that a lot of your journey has been serendipitous and it has been you know i was sitting in a co-working space in sydney and someone mentioned this space in bali and here i am yes it's not much, not much strategic um, <laughs> going into general it's sort of it's very much like that um but i guess if you're open to stuff then um then I mean, really interesting things kept happening i think since uh, kind of since i left home and left my job I and mean, it was a succession of interesting occurrences so perhaps yeah as a result of, of all of the serendipitous approaches and and the kind of being part of these hub communities where people are like trying things all the time and so yeah that's been really beneficial for me good on you so let's let's track 
back a little bit. So I want to go back to, um, did you study journalism? and Or even like, when did you kind of get the idea that you might want to get into the world of journalism? Yeah, so I am, um, funnily enough, it was a trip abroad. I mean, no, there's no journalists in my family. They're all engineers and mathematicians. And I didn't really want to go down that route. But there was, it was like there was no kind of parental or family role models. And on my, sort of when I was 18, 19, just after I finished my, we call them sixth form studies in the UK, um, but it's before you get to university. And uh, I saw a placement volunteering for a newspaper in Honduras in Central America. And I thought it sounded like a lot of fun. And so I ended up flying out to Honduras, which I'm afraid to say now has the highest homicide rate apparently outside of Syria or a major war zone wow. um, at the moment. It's a very dangerous place. And it was quite a dangerous place that I went. But as a 19-year-old, I didn't really uh, sort of see. I kind of was immune to the danger. You know, you're like, oh, this is fun. Um, anyway, so I ended up working for this newspaper there. And I, um, I interviewed the, the president of the country in sort of English and Spanglish, I think we call it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then I ended up meeting a Reuters journalist and we hitchhiked to El Salvador, which at that time was more dangerous, I think, than Honduras. And, um, and I just had this amazing experience and just thought, oh my God, I really love being away. And I really think this man has the best job in the world. And I think I want to do something similar. So I think, yeah, that was the key thing. Um, and again, it was the whole case of going abroad having this kind of realization that I possibly wouldn't have had if I'd just stayed in my home country for that for that period of time so yeah so how, I didn't I didn't go on no I was going to say how, how old were you when you uh, went on that trip 19 19 my poor mother yes I am um, <laughs> I was like this is my plan and I went off for six months by myself and uh, got myself into all kinds of scrapes um, but it was lots and lots of fun. And I actually, I haven't been back to, to Latin America since, Central America since, since then. But yeah, so it was, it was before uni. And I didn't actually study journalism at, at university, but I studied a kind of a good degree, which kind of helps you. It's a good kind of basis for lots of different things, including journalism. So I kind of picked it up afterwards. Was that a political science degree or arts or something like that? Yeah, so I did, I did um, politics, philosophy and economics at Oxford, which is it's actually what Tony Abbott studied, embarrassingly, um, and oh. our prime minister <laughs> as well. Um, so, yeah. yeah, there you go, following in these great people's footsteps. <laughs> Hopefully oh, slightly, uh, slightly more favourable political viewpoints. Right, right. <laughs> I was going to say, um, they're not, well, Abbott's probably not the greatest, greatest example well, of an exactly. alumni that you want to associate with. But um, hey, he made Australian <laughs> Prime Minister, so what can you yeah, say? Yeah, he, he, he was very famous. Yeah, exactly, um, right. Yeah. exactly right. So now you've, you've just listening to this story, you've, you've got a rebellious streak. <laughs> and so, where, I mean, that, that obviously drives this, I guess, an internal ability to. Uh, you know, go with the flow or be spontaneous or, or really to mm. dive into the water freelancing because that, that for a lot of people is a scary prospect. Yeah. You know, where I don't have a, a locked, you know, locked in a weekly or monthly salary or an annual salary. It, yeah. it's, it's, you know, how have you, uh, what was that transition like? I mean, when you decided yeah. I'm going to give up the job, then yeah. I'm going to go and do this thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was something that I thought about for a long When I say thought about it, I hadn't strategically thought about it, but I sort of thought it would be really nice if I could go freelance. And I was picking up a couple of gigs on the side of my main job, but not enough to live in London on at all. And, you know, people were saying, you'd be mad to go freelance now. And I thought, I could, to be honest, I believe them. I did think I would have been mad to have gone freelance. What actually happened was that I just reached the point with my job where I just couldn't carry on any longer. And I just was like, 
I can't do this. I have to leave. Like, so I kind of just, I was, most people, you know, have a careful plan in place and, you know, just like make arrangements and make sure they have enough money and have the, everything lined up. I just jumped, jumped ship, like, like pretty much as little notice as I could get away with and packed all my stuff up and left London. So it was pretty dramatic. Wow. <laughs> um, I know. I know. So, yeah, it's fun. Claire, can you take us back to that, that moment where you're, you're in your mind, you're going, I can't carry on with this. What was happening for you at that time, if, if you don't mind sharing um, It was just like one of these things where you're looking at your life going, how did it end up like this? Mm. You know, how did I end up in this miserable situation like where I felt like I had no options available to me? I was like getting offered jobs, but they were working for, so London, you know, London has a hugely developed PR like industry. And, you know, so it was like corporate PR work I think. And it was like, you know, mainly would have been keeping oil companies out of the news. And, you know, I was like, this is the best that I could hope for. You know, that's what I was thinking. I was kind of thinking, how did this happen? How did I end up in a situation where I feel like I don't have any choice about what I do with my life? Because it really felt like that at that time. Um, yeah, it was it was a bizarre feeling that I kind of can't really like now. It seems so far away, but yeah, for a while it definitely was just like holy. So how did this happen? <laughs> this is an explicit rated podcast, so feel free to be yourself. <laughs> That's fine. Did you have when you were growing up? I mean, you know, five years old. Were you one of these people that were like? Uh, for me, I, I tell this story of you know when I was four. I remember just going back to that. And so I was always very interested in, you know, foreign lands. And, and also I think I do, like a lot of people, suffer from a mild form of seasonal affective disorder where we get, I don't know if anyone gets this in Australia, but we get, you know, we get grumpy. We get basically, days get really short and we get really grumpy. It's kind of what happens, we kind of hibernate. <laughs> so I think it was those things combined. But yeah, I was always kind of fascinated with it, sort of faraway lands. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure that I can't think of a costume off the top of my head, but... Uh, yeah, there was always something something there. Or maybe something. there were cartoons or books that you were reading, you know, or, or something that just grabbed you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was definitely into those kind of into those kind of books, those kind of escapism. Yeah. Wow. Um and what about the, the, the literary word or you know, because writing is storytelling. I mean journalism is mm. storytelling. Um so when did that skill really, you know, play a, a role for you? Was that yeah. you know, were you always doing that? doing plays as a kid or were you I was yeah I was one of those kids <laughs> just like popping the microphone and yeah I got I from a young age I was, I was kind of not bad at doing accents and so if there was ever a play you know I'd get up and tell the story complete with stupid accent and so I suppose that got me used to telling stories and also the kind of benefits that you get from that you know people finding you amusing or you know thinking you're like you know, thinking you're more grown up than you actually are. So I guess from a young age, I kind of realised that that had a certain power, which maybe that that maybe that led me in that in this direction. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Let, let's talk about the financial reality of becoming a nomad, because this this is a topic that comes up a lot for for people listening to this show and and certainly creatives when I talk to them, considering you know leaving a full time situation and then becoming a freelancer. Mm. So did that sort of play on your mind before, I mean, you talked about having to leave a situation that really wasn't working for you. And yes. so did you sort of go, but I can't because, you know, I've got my bills to pay and I've got certain things I've got to take care of. And how did you resolve that or work through that well, in your mind? That's why moving, leaving 
the city and leaving London was such an important part of giving me that freedom to sort of reassess what I was doing. So as soon as you leave somewhere like London where your cost is so high, um, you suddenly have more freedom to actually turn down work that you don't want to do or actually think about what you're going to do next. You know, if I'd stayed in London on my sort of modest freelance income initially, you know, I would have been heavily in debt um, and it would have been miserable for everyone concerned. <laughs> so for me, moving to a low-cost destination like India and definitely Bali as well, Asia in general, has been really helpful in freeing, giving me time and space to like think about how to generate different revenue streams and like, and also just being okay on a modest kind of freelance income, you know, which it often is initially. So when you first started and you talked about you had initial couple and then, mm. then what was the first sort of product or yeah. service that you were offering? Mm. So I was, an, I had a lot of contacts who I'd known, like I said, the sort of PR agency world. I knew quite well because I've been a journalist for years. And they'd offered me full-time jobs, but they also had like, you know, copywriting work and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I had literally no idea. Writers would tend to be very poor in my experience, like, and journalists at, at thinking in an entrepreneurial way. Yeah, it's just not something that we really do very much. We tend to be paid salary or by the word maybe by the hour or the article. Um, but, you know, it's not, we don't tend to think about packaging up stuff and services and stuff like that. So we often wait for our clients to tell us how much they're going to pay us for the job rather than saying this is how much we cost. But this client did ask me, you know, what's your rate? And I just plucked a figure. Well, I asked my friend and they were like, how about this? And I was like, okay. So that, that's kind of how it began. I just picked a figure for a daily rate and off I went. <laughs> Again, not much thought going into it. Um, but like in London, you can, you know, the rates for kind of that kind of work is yeah. they're pretty they're decent. So it, it makes sense. But yeah, that's how I initially did it. I just paid a day a day rate or an hourly rate, as opposed to a word based rate, which is so writers, you know, generally when you're writing a feature article or a news article, those are often word based. So you get paid by the word. So this is, that was a shift, initial shift to me moving billing by mm. the by the hour. The so are you still day. working on billing by by the hour, day, or monthly, or your contract? How is your billing working? I have like a so there's like a few different things going on. There is so for a while I was on a retainer for one of the agencies I worked for, so that was just a flat fee. Which and I had to if they had enough work for me to do, then I I would do that work up to five days a month. And then you know I still do contract work like on a kind of one-off basis. And then I also run these other projects, which are like, some of them are like package-based services, which are a flat rate fees that you can buy as well. So basically what's happened is, as I've spent more time hanging around Hubbard, I've developed like different ways of packaging stuff up and, and different options and different kind of ways of selling what I do to people. So it's, in, in answer to your question, yeah, it's like a kind of portfolio of different approaches. And so how do you then determine where to put the client or prospective clients? Is it a case of mm. it's all on your website or do you sit down and have an initial you know, conversation and say, yeah. okay, this is what you need, therefore this is the package that suits you? How does it work for you? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, a lot of the stuff is word of mouth. Yeah. So I'm meeting people, I'm getting referrals from people here, got some clients from back home, and so I work with some agency career in the States as well. And the, the kind of the kind of corporate stuff I do, which I do less of these days, is like, you know, that, that's, 
that's just you know that's a flat rate that I quote them. But with like these guys, so these guys who want help with media, they all have a slightly different weakness. So you know, some might be strong on article writing, but not know how to pitch. Some might be better at pitching, or some might need help with article writing and pitching. So you know, I have to kind of adjust that accordingly, which is kind of what I've been doing at the moment. Like, since I, since I basically developed the story scientist, which is the kind of the work I'm doing on the PR side of things for small businesses, yeah. I love that. There's, there's something that I talk about, I mean, I mentioned this in a previous podcast, where particularly for creatives, the challenge is trying to put out great work, which is, you know, artistically brilliant or, you know, meets your own high standard of what should be out there in the world. And then there's what, you know, the market will pay you for, there's also making sure that you pay your bills and cover your costs and, and, and you know, go and travel and whatever it is that, that you're there to do. So how were you able to navigate that, working out what the pricing should be and also what the clients are willing yeah. to pay for? Yeah, so I have this conversation just now because I'm, I've been developing a program with Lydia, actually, who I've helped with some PR work recently. And um, so that what the market will bear because, because I enjoy the PR work and so I, I don't mind if it pays me less. But if there's an ability to scale the way you deliver it through a, like a kind of group training program, then, then I think that's, I don't mind, that's fine. Um, so that that works. But yeah, like generally, I think the difficulty that a lot of creative people have, especially when they start to really enjoy what they're doing, like for me, it's using skills that I can't kind of hone as a business journalist and freelancing in the PR world for, to help smaller people like startups and individuals. When you start to really enjoy it, you're just like, you want to work all the time, you want to help everyone. And people say, oh, I haven't got much money. And you're like, oh, well, but it would be good. You know, it'd be so good if we could tell your story. <laughs> and then you'd be, and so you get into that and then you're like, oh my God, I'm working all the time. So that's sometimes the risk when you really start to enjoy what you're doing as well. And you just realize, you know, you're like, I can help people and you just want to help everyone. And you have to, you can't do that because you drive yourself completely bonkers. And um, so, yeah, you have to have a, a cut off and be like, okay, well, and also sometimes, you know, I've been in situations where I've said yes to work at certain prices and then ended up doing it and resented it. So, you know, like I was just having this conversation with Lydia just now and it was just a case of like, okay, what level, what amount do you, does one need to get from one doing one job mm. in order to not resent it? You know, and it's almost like you have to figure that out for yourself and you have to think of the opportunity cost of what the time you're giving up and how you could be spending that doing something else. And then also your, your cost that you actually need to get by, which obviously when I'm here, dramatically reduced compared to my old London life. And they're like probably a third of my old costs. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, so something that I'm picking up on, which I think is so powerful, is that you have a reflective state where you look at, well, you know, I'm not only looking at the opportunity cost of missing out on a project or something that I might be inspired by or I might love the client or whatever it may be. There's an emotional part to what you're doing. Mm. But then there's also this, well, the real opportunity cost here is I could be back in London in a really sucky situation um, yeah. and, you know, having my life. So, the, the, yeah. and I think that's something that a lot of us tend to forget when we're in the grind of, of trying to work mm. out, you know, what an entrepreneur is and I know a lot of creatives even hate the word entrepreneur yes. for them it's like no I'm a, I'm, a, you know, I'm a fucking artist and this is what I do and yeah. it's you know and that's something people have to work through whatever it is it's it's, ma it's, it's making a living doing what you love to do or well, you know, and I, yeah. And, yeah and if you have more control over the work that you do and the people that you do it for I think that's 
very powerful as well. You know, so once you're in a position where you're kind of saying, I work with only these people and you enjoy working with those people, suddenly the work doesn't seem so bad after all. Mm, absolutely. So that's a nice segue into uh, where you are now and you use an example of, of Lydia Lee, mm-hmm. one of your clients and, and friends who you're working with over there. Yeah. And so how what is the program and, and, and what is the intention of the program? How does it help? Well, this is funny because we were friends and she obviously is a business coach and her job is to convince people that they have skills that are of value. And she was trying to convince me that my skills were of value. And I was like, oh, no, really? Surely everyone knows this stuff. Um, and she was like, no. I said, okay, fine. Well, let's develop. Let's, I'm going to make a program for you that's super easy. Something Because you know, she doesn't have time to pitch to media and she was getting like she was getting interviewed on lots of kind of podcasts and like featured in small blogs but nothing kind of big time and you know I knew that she had blogs on her site which I thought like showed it could be potentially publishable and so I basically was like right I'm going to put you on a program like and we're going to try and pitch the plan was to pitch every day for 30 days we actually didn't Basically, every single pitch has been accepted, and so you can't you can't pitch like you can't pitch to Forbes if you're like and then pitch Huffington Post the next day. They won't publish both of your articles. You know, they won't be happy if you if you like do that to them. You know, because they they like to think that they they're like oh we own this content for the for the, for the time when we're actually publishing it. So when she had the the first pitch, got accepted by Forbes, and I said for that I just identified the person she needs to be pitching to, the kind of things that they published ready and then adapted her blog um, to kind of suit the tone of the publication and then sent it off and then that was a, that worked well and then we had some success as well with the Huffington Post um, and also with Virgin the online blog for the company in the same name and like then like by an amazing kind of an amazing side effect of that which I had nothing to do with was that Tim Ferriss shared one of her articles and Richard Branson shared the other one yeah and, I saw that um, yeah. yeah, and it was like, oh my god, I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> How is that for a client testimonial? <laughs> yeah, we were just like, this is so cool. I, I was just like, my mind was blown because it was kind of like I had the sneaking suspicion. I kind of, you know, you don't really believe. You're like, will this work? I'm not sure. Um, and then it, and then it totally did work. And and so obviously that's that's like a huge, a huge um, thing for us. And we're both really pleased. She's thrilled. Like I'm thrilled. And you know, now it's the case of basically saying, okay, well, look. If you're not at the stage of having the same kind of content as Lydia and you maybe need to get your blogs, get clear on your story, then it's kind of like helping people do that a little bit as well. So, you know, with some people here, I'm like, you know, I'm kind of trying to find out what their story is. And they're like, why are you asking me all these questions? Because, <laughs> because this is what is going to make you write the best possible story that you can, that people are going to identify with and share and comment on and engage with. And that's why, because people do care about you, the author. Especially if you're, you know, you're trying to like convey your credibility in one area, they need to know why you're the best person to be commenting on this particular thing, um, and you need to have something interesting to say. So, anyway, so I find that really fun. So I get to like probe oh, relentlessly. Uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, we're not talking about anal probes. We're just talking about. No, <laughs> we're not. I mean, that's a really interesting visual image, which. Is- <laughs> Uh, yeah, like erase. in like in a, in a journalistic fashion. Right, uh, I <laughs> love that, uh, and I think that there's a level of and this is where the artistry and the mastery comes in because a lot of um, entrepreneurs and creatives 
don't go down to that depth of story, um, their own storytelling. Mm. They may do it for their clients. So I guess let's rewind to someone listening to this, this podcast right now and, and they're at the starting point. So yeah. and they're thinking, well, I want to, you know, get into a Forbes or a Virgin or whatever it may be, wherever the audience is. Um, mm. And what sort of, without obviously going through the whole thing you've done, but what would yeah. be the, the initial starting point? Like what, what yeah. needs to be in place? I, I mean, I guess, I mean, I, I personally think that pitching in all this takes a lot of, it can take a bit of time and resources and effort to do it well. And so you should kind of be clear on why you're doing it first. You know, is it, it, it can obviously lead to, to great things. Like it can help you get speaking gigs. It can help you grow a list if you've got a list on your website, all that kind of stuff. But I think being clear on, on that kind of why. Um, and then, you know, a lot of it is you'd be amazed how many people don't really read the publications. that They don't actually really read and look at the tone and style of the publications they want to be in. You know, so they might, if they pitch, they might just be like, well, I think this is interesting. But they're not really thinking, okay, but is the editor who is in charge of this section, have they ever published anything like this before? You know, what do I need to maybe do to my content to make it something that they would publish? So, yeah, I think there's like an element of like looking inwards. So it's like, why are you doing it? And also looking to see what people are saying already and where you can add something unique to the debate. I think most people feel like, you know, they, they've got something to say. You know, they've got a unique perspective and they have. So it's like getting clear on that. And some of that will be, you know, going and seeing what's written out there already and like where you can add to your kind of unique viewpoint. So to, to break that down into practical steps mm. here, what someone could do is go to a publication. So, yeah, go on. Sorry. Yeah, oh, I was going to say, yeah. Just like, yeah. You know, go so, what I say, so what I say to people is, like, decide what you feel like you could comment on, what issues you have a view on, right? And then start to collect links to blogs of articles that maybe you agree with and some that you disagree with. So if you want to write comment pieces, then you, know, you need to start thinking, okay, well, like, these kind of comment pieces are already doing well. What could I add? Why are they wrong? You know, what could I add to the debate? So, like, that's an exercise, an easy exercise. And of course, if you see what's already popular, you can already see. You know, you'll know that there's a good chance that your pitch would be likely to be accepted. I like that. I like that you're framing it by actually evaluating both ends of the spectrum. You know, on an issue, uh, yes. and then framing story around that. How do you then tie that to your own story? Like, you know, how do you tie that to this is my journey and this is why I do what I do? Yeah, so I think I think that's, again, getting very clear on the why behind your business. And a lot of the people in this world, where I am right now, and I think in a lot of the hubs around the world, are quite they have a good story. There's a reason. There's a story. You know, you've got a story. There's a story, a clear story about how you ended up doing what, what you do. And I think that's the case for most people. Um, and those are the bits which you need to move to the top of your article because they're like, they're like you know, explaining the kind of why and why you've got this particular view. So I think it's important to get clear on those. You know, for Lydia's articles, because you know you're pitching to people who haven't necessarily read your work before, they don't know you. So on your own blog, you've got all these fans and they know you, and you don't need to explain your whole backstory. But when you're pitching out to like a major publication, you need to be you need to set the scene. You know? So you need to be like. Three years ago, I was in work hell, working 18 hours a day. Now I'm doing this because I realized X, Y, Z. But you need to set the tone so people know, like, your transition story. Um, and people, people find that sonus content very engaging, I think, generally. Like, people really relate to it, which is good. 
And is that a, when you talk about pitch, is that a press release or is that something more con- short and con- concise? Yeah, I mean, so obviously like big companies generally do send up press releases. I don't really advocate that generally for most of the people that I work with. If you're doing a product launch or you're a startup who's just coming into being, then a press release might be appropriate. But I would have your best results are from emailing the right person. You know, what we're talking about here, we're basically when a journalist you know, or editor is deciding what to write, they have like a bunch of different sources. They hit up their existing contacts. They will receive email pictures in the inbox, which are just like tips or picture ideas for stories or feature articles or comment pieces. Or they'll be looking at the wires, they call them, which is like where all of the press release information gets disseminated. And that's when, you know, when you see a story that's on the wires, that's from a press release that's been disseminated on a major news wire disseminator. And it'll be often like it could be survey data, it could be like it'll be when and it'll be those stories where you read the same story in like five different newspapers or whatever. It's because they've taken it off the wires. So for the kind of individuals that I'm working with, I don't really worry about press releases. I'm more in the habit of like teaching them how to get to on the story, who to target, you know, which publications to go after, and how to actually just get your comment pieces published, you know, because it's like there's very distinct channels that you go through if you want to get your blog published in the Huffington Post or in Forbes. So that's kind of what I work with, rather than you know having to issue a press release or anything like that. It's literally just an email that you're sending or filling in a form depending on the publication. And as a, as a, when you were in the journalist role, um, mm. what was, I guess, what were the common mistakes that you saw that small <laughs> business owners would make, um, yes. you know, that, that anyone listening to this can really avoid? Uh, okay, well, the top number one mistake is when they copy-paste the identical pitch to, like, 50 million different journalists and don't, <laughs> don't change the name at the top of the email that is like blunder number one and you're like get an email from someone saying hi Sarah and you're like my name's Claire go away or it worse still they call you by a man's name That's oh no <laughs> so yeah my name's not John um, so that is problem number one and second sudden mistake I guess that people make is they don't read your publication or really understand who your audience is so you know like every editor or journalist will have a specific what they call an in industry as a beat you know and your beat is the area that you cover and you know like if I'm in one beat if I cover entrepreneurship for a publication I'm not going to send your pitch about tech probably to the tech guy and it's just, just going to sit there in my inbox and just never be never see the light of day so the key thing is to like make sure you're reaching the specific editor or journalist who covers the issue that you're going to talk about um, you know, whether it be like you know, creativity or innovation or whatever it is. And um, so doing that requires a bit of research. And, and unfortunately, a lot of like this kind of stuff is quite old fashioned research. You know, it's like there's databases around that you can access for lots of money. But um, a lot of the time you just have to do some good old fashioned research to see who is in charge of what and who you should be sending your, your pitch to. And that's that's a simple case of a spreadsheet, putting down publication, journalist, article, link. And just going through, yeah, you, you know? know, yeah, it is, and it's all, it's also a case of setting up, you know, like alerts to on key issues or whatever. So yeah, like I mean, there's there's lots of things you can do, but I think you know, having creating something that populates a spreadsheet is helpful definitely to see what's being what's being said already and by who. I love it. And typically, what size would you recommend in terms of the pitch? Like, how many, how much, how much words or paragraphs? You know, or is it how many pages would you do that? Would, would the pitch Jesus. be? Jesus, fewer the better. <laughs> I mean, like, 
I mean, like I always said this to um, you know to Lydia, and a big reason why you get success is when the more stuff you can tell in your headline, the better. So, for example, one of her headlines was lessons I, lessons I learned from leaving a six-figure job, and it tells you that she obviously had there was a moral lesson. It tells you that it was something that she learned. It tells you that she used to have a six-figure job, like that she doesn't anymore. You know, it tells you all of these things just in, just in like a few words. And it's, you know, it's why you often see, it's kind of the essence of good communication, really. And it's why you often see like new startups or products described as like in, they're couched in terms, in, in terms of another. So you might see like Tinder for writers or like Uber for bus drivers or whatever. Like they'll be like, okay, what's something that everyone understands? Okay, right. Everyone understands what Uber is. So let's just apply it to this thing. And then we, we just managed to describe what we do in three words or whatever, which is like the ultimate, like, kind of aim of a lot of this stuff. Like, how quickly can we, can we convey it? And a lot of that is because, firstly, we will have a short attention spans because we're bombarded with some information the whole time. And we need to get the information as quickly as possible. And it's also because editors and journalists under insane amounts of pressure bombarded with things constantly everyone getting hundreds of pictures every day so you know like i always say that it's like the more you can communicate with the left with the least words you know that's that's what you should be aiming towards so short as short as you possibly can <laughs> i love it i love it and that's so valuable and you answered my next question which was you know on average how many pictures are editors and journalists getting per day and and you know are they getting inundated in their inboxes and um how do you how what was your selection process i mean, I mean obviously yeah. a, a grabbing a headline that was relevant that would grab you but how would you you know from an inside insider's yeah. view you know what what was the thing i mean that, it depends yeah. on your it depends on your role so like if you're a journalist it's the editor who often will be like you chase some stories yourself but often you, you might also get story tips from, from the editor above you but like yeah i mean just i think if you can grab someone from the email headline that is that's what you need to be trying to do because otherwise you're just gonna if you tell me that something's launched i'm gonna be like snoring into my computer um i don't care tell me what's changing you know Tell me what's changing. Tell me if there's a crisis ahead or a threat or something that I don't know about. Like, um, tell me why everyone else is getting it wrong and you're getting it right. That's those are the kind of things that get me interested or would have gotten me interested. Beautiful. I, I love that you qualified the the. You know, it's not about the product or the service you've just launched or the business you've launched. It's actually about how does it actually impact or change. You know, right. some the status quo or, or whatever it may be, right? right? Or right. I'm like, I'm like the worst headline you can have is unknown startup launches product name that I just made up that none of you know what it means. It's like, <laughs> and and of course that tends to be the way that people work because they're like, oh well, you know, but I've got this fancy new name and I've called it a section on the website and we've got a logo for this thing and we have to like we have to basically have this at the top of every single thing we write. And I'm like, no, you don't, because you have to be telling me what this thing does first, and, and then we'll get to everything else. Right? It's fine once you're well-known, once you're Uber, everyone knows what you are, but like if you're just an unknown, you need to be saying what and why first. I love it. Really insightful stuff, Claire. I'm going to ask you one last question, and then we're going to wrap up this call. What? How does someone then leverage or capitalize on the attention they get? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Lydia's been absolutely fantastic at this. Like some people just go, oh, I've got published, that's nice. But she, you know, has done, she's reached out to other 
other like people she'd reached out to other people who were quoted in the stories or mentioned and then you know she's made capitalized on the fact that she is, is engages with facebook groups a lot you know like i am not a big engager in facebook groups much to her annoyance but she does it a lot i think that's important she already people know her and then she's like obviously people are very supportive on these groups a lot of the time and so they you know they're like once a bit supporting her and saying this is great and i think like a lot you know sharing on your own channels and sharing on different groups that you participate in you know like all that kind of stuff is is, is really important too and i think that that was a huge lesson i had when i got onto channel 10 here in, in sydney a couple of years ago which was you know yeah it's got a distribution of you know whatever million whatever the number is first thing was the audience what that were of the viewing audience weren't relevant to the business that i had mm. at the time so yeah. i didn't get any clients from that and even if they did come to my website um they you know there was nothing on my website to to really capture their information right. or, or take them down to the next step yeah and that could be you know whatever that may be for you. yeah so i think that that's where yeah something we need to consider I think that's why it's important, absolutely, you know, because she just spent quite a lot of time getting, like, redesigning the kind of funnels that she'd had, the email marketing stuff on her site. And I think, you know, that's, that's good as well, because that really helped. But definitely having a contact form is essential, so people can actually get in touch with you and hopefully sign up for, for something on your site, for sure. All right. I really, really thank you, Claire, for this very insightful conversation and I know those who are listening are going to be like whoa I didn't know this much about PR uh, how that can help them grow so we're going to just wrap up this call and thank everyone for listening uh, Claire how can how can any how can people connect with you and learn, learn more about what you're doing yeah so I have a few million different sites but the best one for like media and pitching and um, all that kind of stuff is um, www.thestoryscientist.com um, which is a website I'm currently sort of working on to sort of relaunch soon. Um, or you can see a sort of general portfolio of some of the things I do on ClaireHarrison.me. ClaireHarrison.me. And was it yeah. B as in B-E, story it scientist? Was, it was B, 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 B as in T-H-E. V, the, the, the. T, the, yeah. TheStoryScientist.com. Great. I'm going to add those links in the show notes for this episode. So you guys, you can go check it out there. Claire, thank you so much for spending the time with us today um, and definitely we'll get people to come and check you out and more about, you know, growing their story. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone else listening to this, hit subscribe, share this podcast with your friends and whatever else. If you want to share Claire's story and also the practical tips that you've learned, definitely go and apply what you've learned because it's more about the doing and not just listening to cool stuff. That's what we're all about here on Transitions. So we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Thanks.